This morning, I'd like to just kind of illustrate in a very simple and uh, elementary way, and almost, kind of what we've been talking about last week and what we're going to talk about today. And that's via, at least initially, this backpack. Now, it's not heavy at all, but I'll probably act like it is for the sake of illustration, okay? Because what I want this to represent this morning is trials. You know, they, 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 they present a unique opportunity to us in that, and a challenge in, in that they require a response that we don't normally give. And they require wisdom we don't naturally have. We looked at that last week. And so when we end up strapping on, so to speak, a heavy burden, it's placed upon us. We didn't ask for it. We didn't cause it. We can't change it. We can't stop it. But for some reason, we have to remain under it. We're wearing this backpack that seems burdensome. It's weighing us down. We learned last week the key is to remain faithful under it, ask God for wisdom while we're in it, in faith. As we journey through, whatever time this trial may be kind of velcroed or attached to us or part of our life. Ideally, there is a point in time in which the trial ends. And what we discover is that what seemed burdensome, what seemed heavy, what seemed like a bother, what do I do with this, how do I wear it, how do I get along with it, how do I respond to it, was actually a gift from God. It was disguised as a burden, sure, but it was actually a gift. Because in a trial, we know that God said He will do His work in us. He will do things in us that will bring us to maturity, that will complete us, that will enable us to lack anything spiritually. And so actually what seems like a burden at the beginning is actually God's gift to us. In fact, I would say it's a gift to us that He gives to mature us that in ways that He wouldn't do any other way because trials do things you would never get when it wasn't difficult. And so this morning we're going to see a little bit more about this thing that we call trials that seem like they're troublesome, but the truth is they're actually gifts. This is the journey we're on. This is what all of us experience from time to time with trials. Now along that journey of seeing a trial, seeing a backpack that's burdensome become actually God's gift to us and that it matures us, along that journey, there's an important intersection that everyone comes to. It's an intersection when that trial could become a temptation. It's when what is actually God's tool of sanctification could turn into Satan's enticement to sin. My wife knows a good bit about this intersection. Last Sunday night, we wrapped up all of our Sunday ministry efforts and different things. It was later in the evening. Lamps were on the living room. We're sitting there. No kids were around. We're talking. I emphasize no kids were around. We're talking. Beautiful moment, you know. No offense, we love the treasures called children, but we were happy for a, for a moment here just to chat and talk. And she, almost out of the blue, said, so what's the greatest trial you've been through? We chatted, and then I said to her in response, what about you? What's the greatest trial you've been through? And we know each other obviously very well, but I was curious how she responded to that, and if there's any more insight I could learn. 
And she relayed to me more of the story that I was familiar with, but not to this degree. And uh, after her freshman year in college, that's where we met, she went back home to Michigan for the summer. During that summer, a, a good friend of hers named Scott, she had previously dated him, was good friends with him and his family, um, had a terrible accident, tragic accident. They thought he was going to die. This was in August of, after her freshman year. And he didn't die, but they thought he would just be a severe vegetable most of his life, the rest of his life. And the truth is, as years have passed, he's become a, not quite that. He's doing decently better, but still has tremendous brain issues, physical ailments, not much past, just a vegetative state in some ways. But in those beginning months, there was a lot of questions. What's going to happen? And, and Julie really knew Scott. She knew his family and was close to them. And in those first few months that happened, I mean, excuse me, those first few weeks, she helped a lot, was at the rehab center, was at the hospital. Um, she came on back to college after, her, uh, after that summer, but after only two weeks, she just felt such a traumatic um, response, I guess, or effect from that. And she moved back home and said, I'll finish my studies there. She did, and I uh, went to school at Adrian College. And during that time, she just stayed close to the family and Scott. We met again later and ended up getting married. She said that during those months, helping with that family and helping Scott, she goes, I, there were many moments driving back from the rehab center, driving back from the hospital to home, or driving from their house to my house, that I would stop the car and be very tempted to say, this is your fault, and to blame God. She said, week after week, month after month, that temptation just kept pulling at me. That's the intersection that's dangerous. That's when a trial can become a temptation. Now, God was faithful to my wife. and She, in the midst of that, trusted his faithfulness, asked for wisdom, and even though face-to-face for weeks with a severe temptation, we'll call it, she remained faithful. God brought her through. And she would say to you this morning, he did things in that. He did things in her life through that that he could have accomplished no other way. And she's thankful for that gift, as odd as that may sound. But in that moment, in that journey, when that that trial, that backpack that seemed to be so heavy, there was an intersection in which it almost became a temptation. It's that intersection that James talks about next in chapter 1, beginning in verse 13. And it's that intersection that I want to discuss today in this text. So take your Bibles. You're there in James 1. Put a finger on verse 13, would you? And while you're doing that and getting your pen ready and making sure your Bibles are open, whether they're digital or hard copy, I just remind you that this Bible God has written for us, it reveals His one overarching passion from cover to cover, And that is that His glory be known among all nations. And it's our joy to make of that passion our mission. You there, James 1, verse 13? All right, here's what we're going to see today. Here's kind of the take-home truth that we'll kind of end up at. It's really this morning a take-home warning, but I want to kind of give it to you up front. I want you to see where we're headed, and then we'll kind of unpack this in the text. Here's what we're, we're going to say this morning in a simple sentence. That trials, God's gift to mature us, can become a temptation, Satan's tool to deceive us, 
if we stop trusting God under it and start blaming God for it. We're going to see this laid out in the text. I'll draw your attention to two types of what I call sure observations, S-H-O-R-E. I use that word on purpose. Just follow me as you take notes. Two sure observations because from each of these shores, we're going to build a bridge of action. And we're going to stand on that bridge and be able to resist the deceptive temptation to blame God when we're in a trial. So let's dig into our text. James 1, verse 13. God says to us this, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then when desire it is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of His own will He brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. Six simple verses that kind of talk about this intersection, this place where in our trials we may find that we are tempted to blame God instead of trusting Him under the trial. How do we avoid that? How do we work our way through that? I think we have to understand that there are two types of shores looked at here. And I think they show us why it is impossible, listen very carefully, why it is impossible for God to be the source of a temptation, even though He may be the one, is the one responsible for the trial. He's not the one for the trial becoming a temptation. We're going to see why that's an impossibility. First of all, it's because of His character. And notice several phrases in these verses that speak to who God is. All right? This is the first shore I want you to see. Verse 13 says, God cannot be tempted with evil. Maybe more literally, the, 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 the wording could be, God is unable to be tempted. And so, consequently, He doesn't tempt anyone. Now, now I need you to understand something. God is infinitely, perfectly, intrinsically holy, which is why He is unable to be tempted. He doesn't know sin. He's not around sin. He dwells in unapproachable light. His holiness is, is perfect. God is not just a better version of you. Let me even make that more understandable. God, God is not in heaven just thankful that He hasn't sinned yet. It's not that, that God doesn't sin. Listen, church. It's that God cannot sin. It is an impossibility for God to lie, we're told later in the New Testament. We know that He was, uh, Christ was without sin, the second person of the Trinity. So I need you to understand in a, in a theological fashion here. We're not just saying, wow, God's doing good so far these thousands of years. He's not sinned yet. He's holding the universe together by Him it consists, and He's doing a great job. Keep your fingers crossed. That's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is by nature and by being intrinsically holy, perfect, uh, complete, righteous, just. It's who He is, all right? We've said this before at our church. He is wholly different than us, W-H-O-L-L-Y. But He's also wholly 
different than us. H-O-L-Y. God is both of those. He's not just a better version of you. He's different than you, and he's wholly different than you. God lives and dwells in complete and perfect holiness and is perfectly righteous and holy. So he is not able to be tempted. He does not know sin, so it would make sense and logically flows then that he would not then cause someone or tempt someone to sin. If he doesn't know sin, if he's unable to be tempted, if he's righteous and holy, then why would we assume that that kind of being could produce a temptation to sin? It doesn't make sense logically or theologically. So the character of God, first of all, is intrinsically holy. It is impossible, at least based on that simple phrase, for him to be the source of a temptation. (coughs) Pardon me. Notice another part of his character here mentioned later in verse 17. Kind of scan down the passage here. He talks about good gifts and perfect gifts coming from above, from the Father of lights. Using there, I think, the word lights to indicate that God is the creator, the owner of the heavenly bodies of the sun, the stars. And then he uses that as a way to say that unlike those heavenly bodies of light, there is no variation or shadow with God as there is with the lights he has created. For instance, the sun, the stars, and the earth, and different heavenly bodies. In relation to their light, there are different seasons, there are different shadows, Based on movements and based on position, you can get things that change, right? Such as today. It is not today the temperature is going to be next August. Some of you are like, we can't wait till August. I'm with you there, right? But all the things that happen with the heavenly bodies, the sun, the stars, the moon, the earth, and different things, and not just our own planets, but others, they create changes and shadows. Maybe there's a reference here, perhaps, in James' mind to an eclipse. We, We don't know exactly. But God is not like that. God is unchangeably, now watch this, good. He's not just unchangeable only, which He is. He's immutable. God is unchangeably good. So God has never had a bad day. God never woke up on the wrong side of the heavenly bed. God didn't forget to go by Starbucks, per se. It's like, man, I'm in a bad mood today. Or He's not having a caffeine withdrawal. God is unchangeably, immutably good. Everything he does is good, which is why every good and perfect gift is from God. Now, I want you to think about that in this way. For God to be intrinsically holy, completely righteous and just and faithful and true, as well as unchangeably good, that would mean that everything God does because of everything God is, is true and righteous and just and good. In other words, listen very carefully. God can do no unloving thing. It's not even possible. He can do no unfaithful thing. He can do no unjust thing. You're thinking to yourself, well, what about this or that? What about when he disciplines or chastens? Or what about in his judgment? Did you know that even in his judgment, it is just and true and righteous, holy, because He is true, righteous, just and holy. Nothing out of His character can come that isn't who He is. And so even when He does, I'll use the phrase for understanding, difficult things in discipline, in chastening, in judgment, all of those are perfectly loving 
just, true, righteous, holy, and good. Why? Because God is all of those things first. So when we find ourselves tempted to say, God, you did this to make me sin. First of all, that's theologically and logically impossible because God knows nothing of that in his makeup or character. That's the first short, okay? Who God is, his character. Now, now you may be wondering, before we go to the second shore, well, what is the cause of, of this trial that suddenly makes me want to blame God? And when this thing turns to temptation, who is causing that? It's not God's character. It is the condition of man. Look what he says in the next verse. He says, we're tempted when we are lured and enticed by our own desires. You see that? Now, he doesn't say anything here about Satan's uh, bait. That's true. I don't think James is saying Satan's not part of temptation. I think here he's simply making this point that we're responsible when trials become a temptation, not God. So don't think that he's saying Satan's not part of this. Satan could very well be a part of this, just like the world could be and the flesh could be. John lays out three sources of temptation, the world, the flesh, and the devil. But what they do is they bait us with things, and then our own desires kick in for that bait. And notice the kind of agricultural fishing type of words used here. Our own desires kick in, and we see that dangling worm on the hook, don't we? And we bite at it. And what happens is then sin occurs. God didn't cause that. He didn't send the bait to lure us. But the bait is there. Something usually not bad, but good, that's twisted by our enemy. Our selfish desires kick in. We bite on that. And what happens in, then sin is produced. And if not dealt with, that sin will eventually lead to death. That's the process described here. That's how trials become a temptation. When we begin to say, well, well, God, you're the cause of this. You're tempting me to sin. No, actually, that's a deceptive bait by the devil. If we bite on that, we'll find ourselves even further away from God. It's not, it's not God at all. God doesn't do things like that. He can't. Does that make sense? But who does? Satan provides the bait, and our own selfish desires then cause us to bite at that. So our own condition is actually the reason that trials become a temptation. We look for a way out of the trial. We look for a way out from under the, the, the backpack, so to speak. We want to blame someone else for it instead of remaining faithful under it. It's not God, it's our own selfish desires. Because God doesn't act that way. He's not made that way, that's not who He is. But that is how we are. We are sinful, depraved. And we look for ways to pass the buck or shift the blame often. So just kind of be aware of this. When you want to blame God that a trial is now a temptation that is theologically, logically impossible, the real reason is our own heart. Let's move to the other shore for a moment, can we? So God's character is the first reason that we should know it's impossible for a trial to be a temptation to sin, that God would not do that because He can't. The second reason is God's conduct. Notice the end of verse 18. Well, actually, all of verse 18. Because here we have the beginning, I think, of of an expression describing something God has done. Look what he says in verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. 
So, so God is a good God. He's immutably, unchangeably good. And so everything he does and gives is good. And what is the best example of just how good God is? Verse 18 tells us, he brought us forth from death to life. I mean, you talk about a good God. He did not leave you to die in your sin. (laughs) Hallelujah, church. He did not just ignore you. But when you were weak and powerless, when you were still in sin, when you were without hope, God came to you. And this verse says, by his own will and his word, he made you his work. I love the possessive pronouns in this verse, don't you? Look what it says, his own will. So it wasn't your fleshly desire. It wasn't your free will. It was God's will that moved upon your dead, cold, wicked heart and brought you to life. And then empowered you with faith to choose him, his will, and his word, which I think refers here to the gospel truth, the word of truth, that message of Christ. We know Romans says that, that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So God's will, God's word, and then it, it works so that we become a kind of first fruits. Here he's talking about an example or a model of this is what God is doing across the globe, and he's going to showcase this in us. Like, here's what this looks like. It's all about us belonging to God. Because by his will and his word, he brought us forth. Man, that is a good God. So watch this, guys. Listen very carefully. If he is so good that he would seek to resurrect dead sinners, don't you think he's good enough to take this backpack of a trial and over time, show you what a gift it is to you and use it to mature you and perfect you. I mean, if he brought you into life to begin with, he can take whatever he wants and make it for your good as well. That's just how powerful God is. And that's just how good he is. His conduct is good from start to finish. And it's proven by the first fact that he brought us from death to life by his will and by his word so that we're his work. So so do you see the two shores now? We have... The character of God is one shore. The conduct of God is another shore. Now, speaking of the conduct of God, some may wonder, well, could God actually use a trial to actually bring me to faith? I mean, these trials so far, you've talked about, Todd, they seem to be the life of the believer. We're to kind of remain faithful under them, ask God for wisdom in them and faith. But could God ever send a trial to someone? in order that they would actually be brought forth by the word of truth and become his work. Well, sure he could. Here's a story of of a guy to which that happened. It's a little hard to understand, so you need to listen very carefully. But here's one of our own, Steve Ryan. He usually sits over here to my right with Steve and Elaine Cooper. Here's his story of how verse 18 actually happened in his life in conjunction with 13 through 17. Watch this video, would you? I'm Steve Ryan. I've been coming to First Family Church here since 2010. And, well, in my youth, I grew up in Des Moines. But I did not go to church very often when I was younger. And then in 1991, you know, I went up to UNI. And up there, I read Origin of the Species, a book by Charles Darwin. And, well, I became an atheist. 
1999, I was I was seeing my girlfriend. She was in Dubuque, and well, that's when this all changed. A semi-truck was going north towards towards Dyersville, and well, I slammed on my brakes and I hit him in his trailer. The ambulance got there as well, and they had to take me out of out of my truck using the jaws of life. My head was was swollen greatly. I couldn't close my eyes, and they thought saw my teeth in the accident. My left knee is a piece of surgical steel. I broke my left thigh bone, once at the bottom, once at the top. My left collarbone was broken. The pinky ring index finger and the pinky and index finger on my right hand were broken. And I have this scar here, and this is a bone flap over my skull. I had 33 different operations done to my head, so I'll never be able to see again. For the first year after that, I, I honestly wanted to end my life. And then in the year of 2002, I started going out to this place called New Horizons. It's an adult center up here in Ankeny, and um, it's for brain injured people. And there I met Bethany Cooper, and she was very much devoted to Christianity. being preached, it's a very, it's a good thing, because, well, the gospel does me good news. But it shows me the existence of, well, Jesus Christ, and the fact that he came, and he lived a sinless life, and he died for our sins. And after, you know, the trial of my accident and my, and my recovery, Being wine, you know, it has several drawbacks, but I can use it, you know, in order to continue to express this word and to show people that, well, there is good news. The fact that Jesus Christ died for our sins is the greatest of them all. probably eight or nine, ten years ago. Um, so he's known the Coopers, has been discipled, now with Tim's first family. Um, he would tell you, as hard as this is to say, that that accident and the resulting blindness was a gift to him because it was the means by which he realized Christ was the answer. And he said, I would rather lose my sight on earth than my soul forever. Now, I wish you could have heard him say it. He does it a lot better than me. But do you see how all of that works in tandem here? What seemed like this is a terrible backpack that's burdensome was actually God working to bring something very good in his life. Because after all, God only does good things. And the best of the good things he does is save us from our sins and birth us into his family. And Steve is a, is a shining example of that. 
I think it's interesting that in light of all of this theology about God in James 1, as well as the activity of God that we see in birthing people, there are still those who would say it's God's fault and they blame Him. They accuse Him falsely. And so what could actually be a gift to them in a trial ends up being a temptation to sin. And so many people miss out on the real beneficial effect of trials. Because at the crucial intersection, we blame him for it instead of trusting him in it. So do you see why this take-home warning is so crucial today? This take-home truth? Could you read it with me one more time before we see the bridge? Here's here's the take-home warning. Read it together now. Trials, God's gift to mature us, can become a temptation, Satan's tool to deceive us, if we stop trusting God under it and start blaming God for it. You see, this is exactly why in verse 16, he leaves us or kind of inserts this imperative between the two shores. Do you see this? Look at verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. It's almost as if you can hear James kind of raising his voice like most good preachers do. Amen? Amen. I thought you like that. You know, James is here saying, guys, don't be deceived. Yeah, he, he explains who God is, intrinsically holy unchangeably good and how he proves that in his conduct by actually giving us life out of death through his son and so he says in light of these two facts don't be deceived it's the imperative of this passage now there is one other imperative just i want to be textually honest with you it is the phrase in verse 13 let no one say when he's tempted i am tempted by god but let's be honest both of these deal with this idea of deception don't be deceived and say god you're tempting me so I think these imperatives, though there's two of them technically, they, they lean into one basic theme. And here's James's point. Guys, don't give in to devilish temptation when you're under a trial. You're going to think it's an easy way out by blaming God that He's the reason, the fault. But that's just, an, that's just a doorway to death. That, that, that kind of desire, if you bite on that bait, it's going to give birth to sin, and sin eventually will lead to death. That's not an option for us. Our option is, watch this, to stand on the bridge that spans between the two shores. See, this bridge that James has built is this imperative place we stand with our feet firmly grounded that says, the water beneath me may be rough. You may be in in some oceans of trials, but because of who I know God is and because of how I know God acts, I'm going to stand on this bridge and I will not be deceived when this intersection comes my way to make me want to say, God, it's your fault. You're tempting me. Does that make sense? That's what's happening here, guys. And just like my wife, Julie, all of you and me in every trial will have an intersection like this. When there will be a bait in front of you and your selfish desire will want to say, oh, this could be an easy way out. I'll blame it on God. That is not a good option, it leads to death. The right option is to trust who God is and how He acts and to remain faithful under our trial, knowing that God will in the end show that that burden, that backpack, that difficulty is actually His gift to us. Now, let me give you some shoe leather action points that flow out of this, all right? Just two this morning. One from the shore, char- the character shore, and one from the conduct shore, all right? Here's the first one. 
if you really want to make sure that you're planted on the bridge, that you're resisting the devilish deception, that you're not letting your trial become a temptation, I'd say, first of all, do this. Guard your mind with a ferocious diligence to truth. Just commit to knowing the God of the Bible. And notice how I said that to you. I didn't say, know the God that you've invented. You see, we all have a tendency when we're in a tough spot, we're bearing a backpack that seems like a burden, and we've yet to probably see how it's really a gift. When we're under a trial, we love to reinvent God. We love to make Him fit our scenario. Love for God to kind of fit into our situation so that we feel better, so that things make sense quicker. And I want to challenge you not to reinvent God, but to let the God of the Bible be the God of your situation at all times. The God who is intrinsically holy and unchangeably good and will prove to you in time if you'll remain faithful under it and ask for wisdom in it in faith. He will prove to you how this backpack of a burden is actually His gift to you. So guard your mind with a ferocious diligence to truth. Don't let false thoughts land about maybe what you think God should be or what you wish He was. Trust how God has revealed Himself in His Word. Which means, and this is the simple cookie-shelf takeaway, the more we know the Bible, the better job we'll do at guarding our mind with a ferocious diligence to truth. Amen? How are you coming on that commitment to read your Bible this year? Is it getting a little sluggish? And I don't say that to judge you. I found that last two weeks. I, two weeks ago, I talked about this, didn't I? I gave you several avenues and ways to really make the Bible a bigger part of your life so this could happen. But I found in my own life that, that's where the devil loves to come in and, and through just even good things, loves to trip us and stall us and detour us. Have you found that happening? Probably so. Maybe some of you are in Leviticus now and you're like, man, I'm ready to quit. <laughs> Maybe some of you have found that work calls for more hours or maybe the kids have been sick for multiple weeks and it's like I know it's difficult I just want to encourage you as your pastor whatever you do don't forsake reading God's word and I would encourage you try to find times to get lots of the word in you increase your intake because you're increasing then the the truth that's in your mind and it's this mind that is the battlefield, all right? In fact, notice the verse Paul says, 2 Corinthians 10, 5. He says to us this, that we're to take every thought captive. And he refers that back to the idea that there are lofty opinions that raise themselves against the knowledge of God. There are arguments to do that. Here's the picture in this verse, that thoughts will come across your way, uh, suggestions, ideas, And they'll want to raise themselves and they're actually contrary to who God is and how He acts. You should take those captive and bring them under submission to God's Word. That's the kind of warfare you've got to do on the the battlefield of your mind. Another analogy is to simply say this, guys, that your mind is like an airport with a terminal. And every day, thousands of planes want to land on your mind. Only give the ones clearance that are in line with God's Word. If they don't match up with God's Word, let them fly on by. Does that make sense? 
Now, you're not going to be able to rid yourself of the thousands of planes that want to fly by. They're there. Lofty opinions, arguments, different things that will just kind of flood your airport, so to speak. But you've got a terminal. That terminal's instructions are the Word of God. It shows you how to operate it. And man, I would, I would run that terminal based on the instruction manual of God's Word. And only planes that clear this book, you let them land. Otherwise, let them keep on flying. So, guard your mind with a ferocious diligence to truth. Second shoe leather action point from the short of God's conduct would be this. Ground your life with a tenacious grip on the gospel. When we're tempted to complain about our current situation, I have found it helpful to realize that even, in, even under the burden of a specific backpack of trial, we'll call it, God has saved my soul. I'm not going to hell because of the work of God on my behalf through Christ. And I've told this to people, they laugh. It's somewhat facetious, but it's very true. Sometimes in the middle of a bad day, someone says, how's your day going? I say, well, from that man's angle, not that great, but from God's angle, awesome, because I'm not going to hell. I mean, could, it, could there really be a bad day if eternal destinies settled? <laughs> I understand that there, there's bad news and difficult things. I don't make light of that, but I am trying to make a point here. When you, when you get a grip on the gospel that, that through Christ, God has reconciled you. You who were once his enemy, he has brought you near to his side as a son or a daughter. That because of the work of Christ on the cross, completely satisfying the wrath of God against sin. You are no longer considered a stranger. You've now been adopted as a child. I mean, with that news always in front of us, is there really any bad day? The prospect of my life was eternal condemnation and hell before God stepped in. That my future was black and bleak and dark. Separation from God is all that I could envision until God stepped in. And so when I, when I get a grip on that, when I stand on that, like, wow, okay, so whatever trial I'm in here, God, it may seem difficult, but it's not as difficult as what I was in. And you rescued me from that. You saved me by your grace, God. You can do a marvelous work in this as well. Keep a tight grip on the gospel because in the gospel you find the clearest and best picture of just how good God is. Now, I want to kind of give a disclaimer here because that can sound somewhat like, man, ramp it up, Todd. White knuckle this thing. Get a grip and hold on, baby. Kind of like, you know, it's up to you. And I'm not going to back away from the fact that in Scriptures, we are called not to shrink back. We're called to hold fast. We're called to persevere, endure to the end. I, I, I don't want to be a pastor that, that makes light of those. Those are true commands we're to obey. But I want to frame it this way. You only can remain faithful and hold fast and get a tight grip because he is remaining faithful, holding fast, and got a tight grip on you. In fact, his faithfulness to us <clears throat> empowers our faithfulness to him. Here's what I saw this week in studying through this kind of concept. I realized that my single grip on the gospel, on the good news that God has reconciled me to himself through Christ. My single grip on that 
is surrounded by the Trinity's double grip on me. Do you know that? John 10. Jesus said, if you come to me, I won't cast you out. You'll, you'll be in my hand. No man can pluck you out of it. You can't snatch someone from Jesus' hand. And then he says, and by the way, I'm in the Father's hand. So Jesus has got you. The Father's got Jesus. In the middle of that double grip, there's you holding on with a single grip. I would venture to say that my single grip, as weak as it may be, is pretty secure because I'm doubly gripped by the Trinity. See, His grip empowers my grip. His faithfulness empowers my faithfulness. So don't hear me say, come on, you can do it. You know, chug up that mountain. You've got the power. I'm simply saying because of what God has done for us. Man, grip that. And then as Paul told Timothy, you hold, or I think it's Titus, you hold fast to the faithful word. You cling to that. Two things I think will help us stand on the bridge that spans from the shore of God's character and God's conduct and overlooks the waters of trial and trouble. Yeah, you're wearing a backpack. It's heavy. Sometimes you want to kind of take a leap off that bridge. You want to blame God and say, hey, this is your fault. But instead, resist the temptation, the devilish deception that's, that's lurking at you and trust that God will get you safely through it. It's impossible for Him to tempt you. He's intrinsically holy, unchangeably good, and He will bring you all the way home and show you how what you perhaps saw as a, as a burden was really just a disguise for what is actually a gift, a trial that perfects our character. Thomas Chisholm knew this really well. You don't know that name probably. Um, he's dead, but he's a hymn writer of years ago. In fact, he wrote to him, Great is thy faithfulness. Thomas Chisholm, though, the story behind his life is one that's probably re- that resonates with us because he didn't have any massive, huge trial. He just carried a backpack for most of his life that seemed burdensome. A lot of, uh, of, of health issues, which caused him to have to change jobs. He was once a pastor. There was a teacher, a newspaper guy, an insurance agent. His health just was a consistent problem. You might say that at the end of that, when he get, you know, at the end of his life, he saw, man, I, I just didn't really accomplish anything. Never successful, never made much money. I was probably a failure to man's eyes. But you know what he wrote? Catch this. He said, My income has not been large at any time due to impaired health in the earlier years, which has followed me even until now. He was 94, by the way, when he died. A lot of years to struggle under bad health. But I must not fail to record here the unfailing faithfulness of a covenant keeping God and that he has given me many wonderful displays of his providing care for which I am filled with astonishing gratefulness could it be and I don't know this but could it be that the only way God was going to breed in Thomas Chisholm the character trait to notice with astonishing gratefulness God's wonderfulness Could it be that the only way God could accomplish that was through the trial of just nagging health issues year after year? And was there an intersection where Thomas perhaps thought, you know what, God, what have you done to me? It's your fault. I suspect so. But he didn't bite on that bait. He remained under, trusted God in it, asked for wisdom, and towards the end of his life, 
he would write these words about God's faithfulness, the hymn that we often sing. I'm going to sing the chorus for you. Join me if you want. Then we'll sing a verse together, okay? Let's think about our own life. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy first verse with us. Well, Seth's going to join me. Great is 